two of the most influential bands in music history. Joy Division held this mythology. Not knowing the history, young people hear New Order and they love it. One incredible tale. They're uncompromising, rebellious. Timeless. There's just like that darker undercurrent. Just there's nothing like it. They sort of changed the world twice. This is Transmissions, the definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. Difficult second album syndrome is an enduring concept in music mythology. The concept is, you have your whole lifetime up to that point writing your first album. The second, well, that's created while you're coming to terms with the impact of your debut. But for New Order, it was a lot more complex than that. Three quarters of the band had already recorded three albums since 1977, and since then endured hardship, recognition, fame, loss, grief and reinvention and see what might look like the possibility of new success on the horizon. All this went into their second record, Power, Corruption and Lies. I feel very guilty on Power, Corruption and Lies because it was the first album where I, I, by and large, did fuck all. This would prove to be a pivotal moment for the group as they embraced a new way of working. The day would start off well, with good intentions. Once the sun went down, Lucifer would enter the studio. Producing a sound for the times, for a new era. They were trying to make music for the now but also making the music they wanted to make. Of all the records that I listen to now, in my opinion, Our Corruption Lies has the best production. According to drummer Stephen Morris, the seeds of this new sound were sown in between albums. The period in between movement and Power, Corruption and Lies was really interesting because we'd just do these big, long electro jams of like, ultraviolence. Everything's gone green and go on for like half an hour. A lot of the time, it, we were just making it up as we went along. We did some amazing versions of Hurt, which again, could <laughs> go on for a very long time. I mean, and Hurt was one of those, it was a song that wasn't really a song. A lot of electronic beats and things that sounded good, that you could play a guitar melody over and Bernard could sing simple lyrics. It just kind of worked, and they were quite vibey and exciting things to do. So that was kind of like, we found a direction, I think. Primal Scream singer Bobby Gillespie witnessed New Order's musical evolution firsthand. I saw New Order playing Glasgow at the Plaza Ballroom. It was a third, fourth or fifth gig. You know, it was very, very early. 
I think they were still trying to write songs. And it's such an incredibly charged, dark atmosphere. You know, very, very high expectancy and also a real, real mist. You know, they were really mysterious because obviously Ian Curtis had killed himself and they, they'd carried on with a new name and a new member, Gillian. And, um, and they just, see what they just, they played no Joy Division songs. They just played bunch of songs nobody had ever heard I don't think they'd been recorded I think it was even before Movement had been recorded I don't even know if Ceremony had been released at this point but you know they were out playing gigs uh, in an exploratory way I guess and um, I always found that inspiring about New Order you know I was friends with a band called Awake and then eventually I was I played bass in Awake for a while and um, we we opened a lot of shows for New Order and um, 982 83 and um between movement and power, corruption and lies. And um, so I saw, I used to bit like every gig and um, that we opened for them. And um, we were like, obviously like, you know, starstruck. I was, I, mean, I was certainly starstruck. New Order would just, Bernard still looked like the dr- little drummer boy from uh, the Tin Drum. He looked like Oscar, Bernard in 1982, 83, still looked like Oscar from Tin Drum. He had Hitler youth high shaved hair and the, the shirt, the army shirt. The sleeves rolled up and he just looked he looked kind of possessed and traumatised which is I loved that you know it's, and then when I got to talk to him a few years later and going home I realised he was a very warm and kind funny guy you know but I kind of I think I loved the fact that he looked like he was traumatised you know it kind of went with the music because the music was kind of the music was um, kind of depressed uh, you know I heard Temptation uh, in Newcastle Mayfair Ballroom, I think in 1982, like in the winter. And then they'd basically play new songs live just to work them in. And I heard, uh, you know, I had some tracks from Power, Corruption and Lies, you know, like a year, year and a half before it came out. They would play them live, Leave Me Alone. And uh, so I had, I knew a lot of those Power, Corruption songs from my, my tapes, my bootleg tapes. I just kept them for me and my couple of mates, you know. And um, so I actually heard New Order experimenting and developing um, live, you know, in real time. And um, and Rob Gretton, their manager, was very, very kind to us in the wake. Uh, he was such an amazing man and um, a great guy, you know, and uh, very good memories of Rob. And um, they treated us beautifully, you know. After some initial experimentation marrying electronic beats with traditional instruments, the band were eager to find more cutting-edge studio equipment to play with. Seen Stevie Wonder demoing a Lindrum, and it was like the most incredible, funky thing. In Joy Division, I'd never thought of the, the idea of doing anything that was vaguely funky or disco was a good idea. But the way things were going, I could see that it was possibly something that had a bit of excitement to it that was like a different kind of excitement to the same excitement that Joy Division had. Arguably, one of the biggest influence in helping to create that exciting Joy Division sound was producer Martin Hannett. But Martin had moved on after movement, following one last argument... This left the band without one of the architects of their sound. After movement, we felt in control. There was no Martin Hannett being, you know, as mad as a fucking atter. For studio engineering assistance, 
they turned to Michael Johnson at Britannia Raw Studios. Coming out of that, we wanted our own sort of sound. And I think we were getting unhappy with Martin. So I remember going in the studio and it's like, right, we can do this. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> and we did it. And it was like, we did everything how we wanted it to sound. So it was, it was sort of going in a different direction. But I mean, we were glad that what Martin did, but I think because we were finding our feet as well, we wanted to go in another direction, which was more electronic and uh, doing gates and things. And we did really gel and we'd found a really good engineer that we'd worked with. And he sort of took over the producing and engineering because he was really good at both. And he sort of helped us along. We were like forming our own little gang with him. Singer and guitarist Bernard Sumner. Some of the songs on it were wrote back at the rehearsal room. And if I pick particularly your silent face, which is one of my favourites of it. That was written again where we just sat around talking about what we're having for lunch and what was on TV the night before and and then just wrote it really. It was a new piece of equipment came out that was called a digital delay and it was a Korg digital delay and I came up with this idea for a sequence and then a sequence line that the whole thing's you know and then I put it through the new Korg digital delay and put the echoes on it and that gave it a really good groove Steve programmed some drums on it and then I came up with a the string line and just built it up and uh, yeah I was very pleased when we went home that night Sound formed in a vacuum may seem a waste of time It's always been just the same No hearing or breathing No movement, no lyrics Just nothing A sign that leads the way More and more digital instruments like synthesizers and drum machines were becoming readily available in the early 1980s. Eager to embrace any new sound, New Order were, by their own account, like kids in a sweet shop. So we got a digital drum machine, which is the old behind DMX, and we got an emulator, which was like the first. Um, tempted to say affordable but it wasn't affordable it was very expensive it was a you know it was a big big thing it was quite quite expensive that you could record any sound into so we recorded farts and sneezes into it and laughed and oh this is fantastic it sounds like a motorcycle and that sort of thing so we got this technology and we bought a profit sequencer and we got a moog and so we were getting quite technologically advanced for, you know, a lot more than we were when we did movement. But 
But with each machine costing thousands of pounds, manager Rob Gretton had to dig deep into factory records coffers. In his quest for world domination with whatever group he had under his wing, whether it was Joy Division or New Order, was happy to finance and find the money for anything that you wanted to buy that was to be used in the studio. It was insane, really, because, you know, both Barney and I, Barney was married, I think, by that point, and I was living with my girlfriend in my own house. We really didn't have pennies to rub together. You couldn't pay your gas bill, you couldn't go shopping, you couldn't do anything. But if you wanted a five grand synth, all you had to do was arrange it with Chase in Oldham Street and uh, Manchester, and you could, you could get it. Not only did all this new kit cost a small fortune, but back in 1983, the process of creating a digital sound in an analogue studio set up for a traditional band was a painstaking process. Mike Johnson was really good because he was great at editing stuff. So you could try things out and he'd edit bits of tape together because none of us could edit. I don't think we'd, Martin did much editing a couple of times he did some editing, but never when we were there. And it was great, you know, watching somebody doing all that and bits of tape and bits of leader and making another song up out of bits of tape. That was, you know, quite interesting. And it gave you a lot of ideas. You couldn't do it with the digital stuff at that time because we got, well, why, why can't you do it on this? And you know, so, well, you try editing on that. So I see what you mean. Yes, yeah, a bit difficult, isn't it? Stephen Morris and Gillian Gilbert. Most of the time when the songs were written in the studio, it was our job, me and Stephen, to put the drums and the sequences together. Yeah. To try to get them to in, try and get them to in work. time. <laughs> there was a lot of... Writing things down on a piece of paper. Yeah. Which you had to because there's no screen that you could look at. No, all See how many bars you'd done. You just did it, it just had all a, had a, working had, out on a bit of paper. Just had a little light, didn't it? Yeah. And another eight loads of lights. And if they all flashed at the same time, that meant it was broken. <laughs> yeah. That happened a lot. We had about how many? Four on the go. <laughs> yeah. Well, then we had a first lot called the A setup, and, and then the, we thought, oh, we could chain them together we could, we could so you had switch. a B one yeah. so you had an A at the front and a B at the back that's when we were getting <laughs> see with power corruption lies we're becoming increasingly sophisticated <laughs> with gobbledygook <laughs> Not that New Order were totally abandoning their roots as a group guitars, bass, drums, keyboards take the first track on the record Age of Consent Oh, 
Egypt. So we, I mean, we did that, did that early on, didn't we? That was, yeah, that was, that was easy. like a band. That was just playing in the yeah, in the, you know, sequences. I mean, that one and Leave Me Alone with just like band tracks, really easy, dead simple. Apart from I think Leave Me Alone's got a very uh, you know a very clever bit of drumming. On. <laughs> Quite proud of that. <laughs> Should bring that one back. Listening to it now, I think that the way that we used classical instruments, orchestral sounds with the emulator, actually marrying them to the, you know, brand new synthesizer sounds of the Moog and Prophet 5 made it very, very fresh sounding and very unique. Also, because I was uh, the dinosaur stuck in the mud, we went on to marry the rock sound which I was desperately trying to get the group back into and it was the combination of it which really gave us the unique sound of New Order. In a way I feel very guilty on Power Corruption and Lies because I keep thinking it was the first album where I, I by and large did fuck all apart from push buttons. I mean I made up for it because Age of Consent has got real drums and given the opportunity I like banging drums violently but I felt like I was shortchanging myself because I was a lot of the stuff I was programming into the DMX I had a, an Apple thing which would try to teach to sing nobody likes it but I spent a fucking long time <laughs> sitting about with that bastard felt a bit weird that you were spending more time pushing buttons or doing adding up and sums, doing a lot of thinking rather than just being instinctive about it, which was kind of how we wrote in Joy Division. And to an extent, we, we still did at that point because you get ideas out of jamming and in the early electronic songs, we could still do that because they were very simple, but as we were getting more elaborate, they became a bit more of an intellectual challenge, if you like, that you had to think about what went where. The recording of Power, Corruption and Lies might have been hard work mentally, but that didn't mean there wasn't time for recreational activities. Bernard Sumner. The day would start off well, with good intentions. Once the sun went down, Lucifer would enter the studio. more of a fun place where we, in addition to having fun, we made music. It was kind of 50-50 fun, place of fun, place of interest as well, you know, to try these new synthesizers and new recording techniques and get pretty well fucked up as well at the same time.
all through it all, we went out because that was the best bit. After a gig, you'd go out. The gig, fuck the gig, we'd go, you know, go out to a club and listen to music. I mean, it was all listening to records, listening to music, music in a club, go to heaven, and listening to early electro stuff, old gay disco stuff, very loud, four floor. Bass drum, that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to recreate that. He was listening to records in clubs, getting pissed and getting off your head. quite recreationally minded and the dimensions changed as time went on. I can only speak for myself that I smoked a lot of pot on movement, took a fair bit of acid doing power corruption and lies and later on in low life is when the coke arrived. With the party in full swing, money was still tight. Not that some people noticed. The arguments about money at that point, because we had none, were amazing, you know, because the Hacienda was in full flow, as was our money into it. It's no wonder we were off our heads on uh, or me drinking drugs most of the time, because it was so bloody difficult. Despite the difficulties, things kept moving. No matter what was happening off stage or outside the studio, there was always momentum. There was always movement. And with the album now recorded, it was time for designer Peter Saville to enter the frame once again. But instead of drawing on inspiration from futurism or Italian sculptors, Peter had another left-field idea. After falling in love with the painting A Basket of Roses by the 19th century French artist Henri Fantine Latour, he suggested reproducing the image in its entirety. But to give it a contemporary twist, he wanted to add a small colour-coded strip to the top right-hand corner. I hadn't heard Power Corruption and Lies when I proposed the flowers for the cover. But then, you know, when I listened to the album, their strings and beats are kind of mirrored in my flowers and code. It's like almost, you know, by design. But it's really actually just this parallel feeling for the now. I mean, they were trying to make music for the now. And I was trying to propose imagery for the now. And at that time, these sort of juxtapositions of the modern and the historic seemed appropriate. The power, corruption and lies artwork has endured as a symbol of 1980s Britain. But it nearly never happened. Until label boss Tony Wilson came to the rescue. I went around the galleries in London looking for a Machiavellian character, looking for a Machiavellian portrait to kind of go with this idea of power, corruption, lies, found one or two, felt it to be too cliched, ended up in the gift shop of the National Gallery and just bought a few postcards, one of which was the flower painting by Fantin Latour. Martha Ladley, my girlfriend at the time, was with me. She said, you're not thinking of that, are you, for the album? And I said, no, not of course. A bunch of flowers for power, corruption, lies. You know, I am now. And so I 
fell in love with this picture of flowers. I showed it to them. They liked it. Bernard said, well, he mentions flowers in one song. So I said, fine, OK, sold. We've got it. But then it turned out that we couldn't get a reproduction transparency from the National Gallery. Their reproduction transparency was damaged and the painting was on long loan. And as such, photography was forbidden by the auspices of the National Gallery. And so there was an impasse. I didn't really want to do anything. I wanted to do that. And Tony intervened and he said, what's happening? What's the delay? And I explained to him and he said, okay, so you want this picture? And and so Tony went into world in action mode. You know, one of his roles at Granada was as a presenter on world in action, which was Granada's version of Panorama. And Tony went into world in action mode and he actually got the then director of the National Gallery on the telephone, a man called Sir Michael Levy. Somebody must have briefed Levy before the call to explain the situation and confronted with the challenge of photography and new photograph not being allowed whilst the painting was on loan. It was on loan for five years to a museum in Norwich. Tony said to Sir Michael Levy, with all due respect, sir, who actually owns this painting? And Levy's answer was the people of Great Britain own it, Mr Wilson. And Tony said... Well, the people want it. <laughs> I mean, this is as recounted to me by Tony afterwards. He said, well, the people want it. At which point Levy conceded and said, if you put it like that, I'm sure we can make an exception in this case. And so I was granted special dispensation to go and photograph it. But this notion that the people want it, I just, I just love that. Power, corruption and lies. Just eight tracks. For each one, a realisation of all the ideas, influences and pastimes that New Order were obsessed by. Age of Consent. The Village. Your Silent Face. Leave Me Alone. A hybrid of rock and dance music. A band mentality and an electronic aesthetic, technology and heart. In the nearly four decades since its release, the album's stature has only grown. Journalists have described it as a quantum leap from movement, the peak of New Order's stellar 80s output, and a remarkable declaration of independence. It was great that people liked it. It felt good because it felt like we'd become New Order. It felt like we'd done something ourselves that had like a bit of an identity. And you could tell because Joy Division fans hated it. They really hated it. And that's like how I knew we were onto a winner, really. <laughs> this is the right thing because those people don't like us anymore. But other people do, other people do. And it was like going from black and white to colour.
But despite this newfound independence from the past, New Order was still reluctant rock stars. They preferred the music to speak for itself instead of courting the press. The whole thing was done in a spirit of anarchy, very much. There was no promotion. We never promoted anything. We couldn't promote a fucking bring and buy sale. But when they did reluctantly agree to speak to journalists, didn't always go to plan. Basis, Peter Hook. You know, I remember going to do an interview for Power, Corruption and Lies. I remember the kid was from Sounds and I was doing the interview and it was me and Rob, funnily enough. So he said to me, well, this record is vastly different from your last record. And I thought, it's not that vastly different, you know what I mean? Why do you say that, you know? And he went, well, I've not heard it. He said, the copy editor told me to ask that. And I just went, right, you cheeky bastard, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and threw him down the steps from the Royal Exchange. And Rob went, yeah, fucking right up, you cheeky bastard. Now, and that's your manager telling you for throwing a sounds journalist down the steps of the Royal Exchange. That's the type of band we were then, you know, and nobody would have batted an island about that. Even Tony Wilson would have laughed because the jerk had turned up without hearing the record and trying to do an interview. It was ridiculous. It was such an insult. However, the band's mix of aloofness and bloody-mindedness proved to be part of their appeal. We weren't artists. I mean, art was shit, but, you know, we weren't pop, so we had to be... I don't know what we were. We were awkward. We were awkward. We didn't want to be one thing and we didn't want to be another. And it was that that I think made us interesting to people. I used to go on interviews and people would say to me, tell me about your new record. And I'd go, no. And they'd freak. Oh, God, normally they never stop talking at this point. Oh. Why? You know, and be really obstreperous. And it used to really appeal to the punk, <laughs> that anarchic fuck you type thing that we had as punks, you know, that you'd garnered from the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren's attitude and the clash, if you like. It didn't last long, but we kept it on for, you know, longer than most. An echo of the punk ethos may have still existed, but how much were the band influenced by society around them? In 1983, Margaret Thatcher's Britain was going through a period of social and political turmoil. Well, everything that you do, even though you aren't aware of it, sort of reflects somehow what's going on around you. It was pretty grim. I know, but it's like them days. Well, it was Margaret Thatcher, wasn't it? So, I mean, it was part and parcel of... You just took it <laughs> took it as red, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, I suppose we were, really, reflecting the times that we lived in. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Even though it's like grim times, I think it's quite an optimistic record. You were looking forward to a bright future somewhere. Yeah. And I think that's what it is. It was something new. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of the first proper new order, I thought. 
With New Order knowing full swing, respect for this rebirth was coming from fans and fellow musicians alike. Here's Johnny Marr, guitarist with the Smiths, who singles out drummer Stephen Morris for helping to create this new hybrid sound of rock and dance music. Dave invented a type of music. Steve Morris invented a type of music that I would say influenced so many bands. I think it influenced U2, I think it influenced The Cure, and then it influenced bands who were influenced by those. Essentially, this band, who were, you know, a British young indie band, were building stuff on beats that came from him. And that then became a template for a certain way of playing. Thought that never changes remains a stupid lie. Another big fan of power, corruption and lies is lead singer with a yeah, yeah, yeahs, Karen O. The feeling you get from the music is so high. I feel like, you know, they really lift your spirits and they make you want to dance and they make you feel so much. That's that's a skill, man. That's like, <laughs> like I gotta tip my hat, hat to like anybody who can just make make it go off, you know. Obviously, there's like that darker undercurrent, you know, that's running through all the music that you you don't pick up immediately. But I I, I appreciate just you know how up and high the music makes you feel. Veronica Vasica is a New York-based DJ and founder of Minimal Wave Records. Their evolution is what I find especially interesting. You know, you know I would say they started as a post-punk band and then evolved and brought their music to the dance floor, incorporated their influences really well, whether that was like Italo disco, and then they had visited New York, so their take on like New York club culture and European electronics and how they combined it with, you know, the Manchester post-punk sound is what I find ultimately really attractive and what I find created their success. Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore, was such a fan of power, corruption and lies, he produced his own cover of the album's closing song, Leave Me Alone. My girlfriend Eva really turned me on to New Order because she adored New Order and adores New Order. I was recording in um, Salford when I was doing residency there at the Islington Mill. Eva had this great idea to do a New Order song, so we chose Leave Me Alone. And, you know, for me, it's almost impossible to cover music by such iconic-sounding artists. It's a real challenge. Like, you don't really want to do that because people invest so much of their emotional world into what those records are. So you have to be kind of sensitive to it. So I figured I would just approach it in a way that was at once completely respectful slash dignified, yet from a wholly other angle. So I decided to do it with electric 12-string guitar and a cello, some small percussion, and really focus on sort of singing it correctly without kind of aping the song. I wasn't doing it to 
show it off. I've kind of sat on it for a couple of years, you know, and then I finally mixed it and, and put it on a B-side of a record. It was really gratifying. It got a lot of good buzz. Like people were sending me nice little love notes about it. The power of the song, the power of the music, such as the music that a band like New Order would make, and like how important it is to so many people. Okay, so we're all in agreement then. Power, Corruption and Lies is a masterpiece. New Order have realised their potential. A complete album that captured who and where they were. Time for the next chapter in the story, Onwards and Upwards. Oh, but wait a minute, we've missed something. Something important. Oh yeah, this... Coming up in the final part of season one of Transmissions, the podcast, we hear how the band created a new sound out of new machines. It's like a load of gears. That's the way I see it, a load of gears all churning perfectly in sync with each other. A track that drove those who heard it for the first time wild. You would dance on the mixing desk naked. It'd just be like, fuck you now. A song so technically advanced... It was a first for TV. And the cameraman and his little microphone said, they don't move. I think we've got a problem. <laughs> a record so successfully executed, it was the envy of their peers. How can these Mancunian heterosexuals know about this? And it was quite a big moment because it's a brilliant record. as we celebrate the genius that is Blue Monday in episode 8 of Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy Division and New Order. I'm Maxine Peake. The series producer is Craig Templeton-Smith and this has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. 